All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned every one to his own way, but the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. To Martha he said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Before we begin our study of the word this morning, let's bow our heads and go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we recognize that you have revealed yourself to us just as after creating Adam and Eve, you revealed yourself to them and each day you came to spend time with them in the garden to teach them, instruct them, guide and direct them until the fall came. But even following their sin, you still revealed yourself to them. You came to them. You gave indications of your future plan of salvation. You taught them about sacrifice. And you laid out the principles that would undergird your plan of salvation, predicting that the seed of the woman would defeat the seed of the serpent. And that lays out the plan of salvation that is developed throughout the Old Testament, looking forward to the coming of the one who was identified as the anointed one, the Messiah of Israel. That was, these prophecies were fulfilled when Jesus came and, and he revealed himself to Israel as the Messiah. They rejected him. And as a result of that rejection, your plan for the kingdom at that point was postponed. And a new entity came into being the church through the apostles you revealed new information that had not been uh, revealed in the past, and this is in the New Testament uh, documents, the New Testament epistles, and they instruct us on the spiritual life. And Father, we're grateful that we have this word that has been revealed over uh, 1,900 years, maybe longer, that has been uh, preserved for us, and that we have such a great privilege to have this before us sitting here in our laps at home, having it on our uh, smartphones and iPads and computers. We have more available than ever before, yet so often Christians are less knowledgeable of it, less concerned about it, and spend less time reading it. And Father, we recognize that nothing is more important than learning who you are and learning what you have revealed to us. So, fathers, we look at your word at this time. We pray that we might give it our, our full attention, that we might recognize that this is your word to each of us, that you have done so much to reveal this and preserve it for the purpose that we might come to understand it, learn it, know it, internalize it, that it might shape and transform our lives. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, before we get started this morning, I thought I would show you something that appeared on, I think I saw this on Facebook the other day, and uh, a little bit of humor to begin things. Anyone who's ever been a pastor or a leader of a church has certainly understands what this is really talking about. This is 12 reasons why I, as a pastor, 
have decided to quit attending sporting events. Reason number one, the coach never came to visit me. Reason number two, every time I went, they asked for money. Reason number three, the people sitting in my row didn't seem very friendly. Reason number four, the seats were very hard. Not so much here, but I've been there. Number five, the referees made a decision I didn't agree with. Reason number six, I was sitting with hypocrites. They only came to see what others were wearing. Reason number seven, some games went into overtime and I was late getting home. Reason number eight, the band played some songs I had never heard before. Reason number nine, the games are scheduled on my only day to sleep in and run errands. I think that's my favorite. Ten, my parents took me to too many games when I was growing up. Reason number 11, since I read a book on sports, I feel that I know more than the coaches anyway. And number 12, I don't want to take my children because I want them to choose for themselves what sport they like best. So as most of you recognize, those are the common reasons people give for not going to church. When we shift the context a little bit, it certainly shows how superficial they are. All right, let's open our Bibles to Matthew chapter Matthew chapter 12, or better yet, make it 14. We're going to do a little review, because this morning we're going to come to the end of our this section within Matthew. Things shift when we get into Matthew chapter 16, and there's more of an intensification of the opposition against our Lord during the last uh, year of his ministry. So I want to review a little bit what we've seen in this section because what we saw was a shift in the attitude of the official leaders of the nation, the Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees, as they rejected Christ. And that began in chapter 11, but it comes to a, it comes to a head in Matthew chapter 12 where we saw that Jesus was rejected by the spiritual leaders of Israel and he was accused by them of performing miracles by the power of Beelzebul, which was a term of derision used for Satan. So he cast a demon out of a man who was uh, deaf, dumb, and uh, mute, I mean deaf and mute, and he uh, is accused by the Pharisees of doing that in the power of Satan. And so this brings this confrontation between Jesus and the Pharisees to a, a, a final uh, point, and it's at that point that Jesus shifts his ministry. He's no longer offering the kingdom to Israel. That was the focal point of the first part of his ministry. He came as the king to offer the kingdom to Israel. Uh, the message was repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But they rejected that. Officially, the leaders rejected that, even though there were numerous people who accepted him. The nation as a whole re- rejected him. At that point in chapter 13, Jesus began to teach differently. He began to teach in private to his disciples, teach to only those who came to him as opposed to going into the public marketplace. And he began to teach his disciples about the intervening age, what the age in which we now live. 
that he had come to offer the kingdom. The kingdom was rejected, and so it was going to be postponed. So what would happen next? And so this is uh, indicated by the kingdom parables in Matthew chapter 13, describing the the basic trends of this particular age and dispensation. Then in Matthew chapter 14, we see uh, uh, Jesus beginning to train the twelve. This section here really focuses on Jesus' training of his disciples in preparation for the future ministry they would have after his crucifixion, burial, and resurrection and ascension. And so in Matthew chapter 14, we get a flashback at the beginning of the chapter. So if you're looking at chapter 14, I just want to remind you and walk you through this because it's interesting how Matthew organizes his material. It starts with this flashback related to John the Baptist and how Herod Antipas uh, executes John the Baptist. This indicates that not only is the ministry of John the Baptist and Jesus rejected by the religious leaders, but also rejected by the political leaders. And there is now both religious and political opposition that has come into uh, into play. And from this point uh, on, at least through chapter 15, Jesus is going to be avoiding the territory in Galilee under the authority of Herod Antipas. He's going to go elsewhere because he's trying to avoid a head-on confrontation with the political leadership that might speed up their opposition to him. He's on a timetable related to the fulfillment of prophecy, and the time, the proper time will come for his arrest and his crucifixion, uh, death, burial and resurrection, but now is not the time. So he avoids the territory of uh, Herod Antipas to avoid a premature conflict with the political authority. Then we look at Matthew 14, 13, and we have the episode of Jesus feeding the 5,000. Now the end of this section, which is where we are this morning at the end of Matthew 15, we have a second episode where Jesus is feeding the 4,000. Now, there are some, especially liberal theologians, who come along and say, well, this just shows how the writers were uh, sort of making some things up here, and they were just adding unnecessary things, and that doesn't fit the context. But Matthew and Mark talk about both miracles, and while there are certain things that are similar, there are uh, quite a number of things that are different. And what I want you to see is what Jesus is doing and what he's teaching to the Jews through the feeding of the 5,000, is going to be duplicated at the end of chapter 15 to show that he's providing and offering the same grace ministry, uh, the, the same sufficiency of grace to the Gentiles. So you have a different group. You have Jews here, Gentiles, with the feeding of the 4,000. And so in the feeding of the uh, of the 5,000, we also see an emphasis on on Jesus' uh, compassion. He departs to be by himself in verse 13, and the multitudes hear about it, and they pursue him. And in verse uh, 14 says, he's moved with compassion for them and healed the sick. This is a sub-theme in Matthew. Matthew, uh, uh, let me see. Matthew, let me skip ahead here. Matthew 9.36, Matthew 14.14, Matthew 15.32, Matthew 18.27, 
and Matthew 20, 34 emphasize compassion. And this is an expression of the love of God. In John 3.16, we're told God loved the world in this way, that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus came to die for the lost. He came to die for those who were hostile to him, those who were at enmity with him, and that is the love of God for his creatures, that God in eternity past had a plan of salvation because in his omniscience, he knew that Adam would disobey him and bring about the fall of the human race into sin and that there would need to be a solution to that sin problem. And so as part of God's love in his grace, he provided a plan of salvation that would not be dependent upon uh, human beings, would not be dependent upon human effort or human works, but that God alone would provide the solution, and this would be done through his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who would pay the penalty for our sin on the cross so that by trusting in him we could have eternal life. Now, when we think about the gospel a little bit, let's think and probe this a little more. God as the creator, this is what we see throughout these miracles, an emphasis on Jesus' power, which demonstrates that he is the creator. That as the creator, God designed man a certain way. God understands everything there is to know about man and his makeup, his capabilities, his failures, his weaknesses. There's nothing about a human being that God does not know. In his omniscience, he covers everything. Nothing's left out. So in eternity past, as part of his omniscience, he knows exactly what needs to be done in order to solve the sin problem in terms of its eternal dimensions. The penalty for sin is death, spiritual death, separation from God, and those who do not trust in God's plan of salvation end up in spending eternity in condemnation in the lake of fire. God has provided a solution to that eternal problem through the death of Christ on the cross. But beyond that, God has provided a solution to the problem of personal sin in our lives from the moment we're saved on, and that also finds its foundation in the work of Christ on the cross. The grace of God is sufficient for every problem that we face in life. God designed everything in creation so that God understands how all the everything creation works. He understands bacteria. He understands viruses. He understands the, the chaos that would come into creation because of sin. He understands the, all of the nuances of everyone's sin nature. And God is able to provide a solution because he's omnipotent, a solution so that we can face and handle Anything that comes into our life by trusting in him, he has the ability to solve those problems. This is one thing that Jesus as the Messiah demonstrates through all of these miracles is that he is omnipotent. He's the creator. He is the one who can solve these problems. We talk about the fact that uh, in this feeding of the 5,000, what moved people there was that they were sick. What we see in other passages is that this is defined as those who are demon-possessed, those who are lame, those who are crippled, those who are blind, those who have leprosy. Jesus is able to cure all of these diseases. He's, he's able to take uh, that which is uh, mortified flesh and to heal it and make that those cells 
uh, living and healthy again. He's able to take the, the dead inoperative uh, cells of the eye, the whatever causes the blindness and the, the nerve damage, all of this. He's able to regenerate that and make it whole again instantly. He's demonstrating this from that from the fact that he's the creator, his omnipotence, his ability to solve these things. The principle is that if he can do that, he can solve any other problem. This is always what's behind these miracles. If if our Lord has the power, the ability to solve these problems, then he can solve any other problem. If he can solve the greatest problem we ever face, which is sin, then he can solve any problem that we face in life. And we often hear of people who come and they talk about, well, I have this problem, I have that problem, I have um, I have problems with anger, I have problems with sexual temptation, I have problems with same-sex sexual temptation, uh, I have all of these things. That's just the way God made me. No, that's the way you were born under the... Uh, condemnation of sin and the corruption of sin, but God has provided a perfect solution so that the God who is able to pay the penalty for sin, the God who is able to create everything in the universe, all of the systems in the universe, all of the macrocosmic systems to the microcosmic systems, that same God is able to solve whatever problem it is that you're dealing with. And so we don't look elsewhere for solutions Neither do we rationalize and justify our failures, but we must learn to radically look to the God of the Bible, the creator of the heavens and the earth and all that is in them to provide these solutions. That's what these people are doing. They come out to Jesus. There's 5,000 men, so this is a crowd that could be anywhere from twenty to 30,000 people. We don't know. And Jesus has compassion on them. They're not all believers but they are seeking help for their problems. This is a miserable crowd filled with suffering people. We'll see this again uh, mirrored in the uh, feeding of the 4,000. At this time, we have the first uh, miracle of feeding, which is the feeding of the 5,000. And Jesus takes these five loaves and two fish, which are provided by one of the people that's there, one of the kids, and he multiplies them. Now, no one here or in the feeding of the 4,000 witnesses the miracle per se. Jesus is up front. His disciples are around him. They have this one little basket. And it's interesting that the word for basket here is a word that referred to the, to the small food basket, a kosher basket that the Jews would carry. It's a different word than the basket, word for basket used in the feeding of the 4,000. We'll get to that in a minute. But it's a small basket, and he, and he begins to just reach in, and as he's doing this, he is creating more and more fish. He's creating uh, more and more bread, and he's passing them, them out. And so this aspect of bread and eating and feeding and providing nourishment is a thread that runs through several of these episodes as we lead to the end of this section, the feeding of the 4,000. We're reminded that bread often represents God's ability God's ability to spiritually nourish us. For example, in Deuteronomy 8.3, in reference to the manna, the physical feeding through, through this uh, miraculous bread that appeared every morning when the Israelites were in the wilderness for 40 years, 
as they're traveling, there's no food, there's not much water there. God would miraculously provide for them. And every morning, like the dew, God would provide this, this manna. The word manna literally means, what is it? And they, they weren't sure what it was, but it tasted pretty good. But like anything else, it would get kind of boring if you had your favorite food three times a day, every day for 40 weeks, you would probably get bored with it. But it provided everything they needed, and it went on for 40 years until they got into the land. And when they got into the land and they celebrated their first Passover, then that was the end of the manna. God had supplied for them to bring them into the land. And so that feeding, physical feeding, is a picture of his spiritual feeding. And in Deuteronomy 8.3 we read, So he humbled you, this is Moses speaking to the Israelites, So he humbled you, allowed you to hunger, and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man shall not live by bread alone. The physical features are not sufficient. We have to be fed spiritually. Man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. This is quoted by our Lord during his temptation in the wilderness, repeating that same principle that we don't live by bread alone. Life does not consist in that which is physical and material, that which provides us uh, physically with pleasure, but it must be nourished spiritually, and God is the one who provides that that nourishment. So we see in the feeding of the 5,000 this emphasis on the fact that God is the one who supplies our physical nourishment, and it is sufficient. There were baskets of food left over, 12 baskets of food left over we saw, and that that represents, the 12 represents the number of the tribes of Israel. It is a Jewish audience. It's in the context of his ministry to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And what we learn from this is that the triune God, the creator God, is able to provide for us and sufficiently solve any problem. Sufficient means it's more than enough. God can do it, for with God nothing is impossible. It doesn't matter what the sin is. We have mental attitude sins. Some people are prone to worry, to anxiety, to fear, but God is the solution. It's uh, Some people are prone to uh, depression, things of this nature. I think sin, as we give in to the sin nature, it then creates uh, physical problems. It creates, chem- you know, various chemicals are released in our brain, and it be- creates a cyclic problem. What comes first, the sin or the uh, chemical changes in the body? And I believe what comes first is a sin. So ultimately, if you're going to solve these problems, it has to have a spiritual solution. And it doesn't matter what the problem is, whether it's a mental attitude sin, uh, whether it is an overt sin, all of these things have their solution ultimately in understanding the grace of God and the sufficiency of God's grace. And that's what Jesus teaches in the uh, feeding miracles. As we went on from there, we saw that following that, Jesus went off to be by himself, walking back from uh, this area of uh, Bethsaida, and he goes off to be alone and in prayer. And the uh, disciples leave in a in a in their boat, their fishing vessel, to head back across to Capernaum. They get caught in a massive storm. 
so that they can't make any headway. And for three or four hours, they're fighting the waves, they're fighting the wind, and they're not getting anywhere. And then what happens? Great story. Everybody knows it. Jesus comes walking to them in the wee hours of the morning on the water. What's the lesson? Once again, we see that he is sufficient to overcome the problems of life. Whatever the storms of life may be, Jesus Christ is superior to those problems. He is superior to nature and to creation. He can walk on the water and he can still the storm. And he teaches that to Peter. As Peter comes out to walk on the water, uh, Peter then gets his eyes on the details. of storms of life begins to sink, and the Lord uh, chastises him, calls him to look to him. And as long as Peter is looking to him, then he is able to walk above the storm, above the problems, above the tempest. And so we learn this principle again, that by dependence upon Jesus, we can walk above the circumstances of life. Then we saw in Matthew chapter 14, uh, verses, uh, uh, or Matthew chapter uh, 14, verse 34, again, we get sort of a summary there where the people, uh, excuse me, uh, began to come to him for healing uh, in the area of Genesar. And then in chapter 15, he's confronted by the Pharisees. And this is recorded in chapter 15 down through verse uh uh, verse twenty, uh, verse twenty, and the Pharisee challenged him. And what's the issue? Your disciples aren't washing their hands before they eat. So the issue again goes back to eating. The feeding of the five thousand has to do with providing spiritual nourishment. And here they're challenging the way in which the disciples are eating. They're not following their traditions. That one uh, one issue here is that though they are emphasizing their own tradition of hand-washing, we saw that that wasn't part of the Scripture. That wasn't part of Torah. That was just something they manufactured as part of their tradition. And so they were setting their own tradition, their own ideas over the authority of God's Word. And in essence, what they were doing was minimizing the significance of God's bread of life by elevating their own views over it. And the result was sin. That was making an idol of their own traditions. And again, what they were doing is failing to trust in the sufficiency of God's Word. They were adding their own traditions. Today, we add to the Word of God from science, sociology, psychology. We add from various human philosophical systems and self-help techniques and motivational techniques, and we're not radically dependent upon the Word of God and the Word of God alone. So as we move on from there, we see that after that confrontation, Jesus uh, left the area and he headed to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And there he showed the extension of God's grace to the Gentiles, specifically a woman referred to by, uh, by Matthew as a Canaanite woman, referring to the ancient enemies of Israel. She is a a descendant of the Canaanites. She's identified by Mark as a Syrophoenician woman, a Gentile, and Jesus is going to provide a healing for her. What we saw was that as she approached him, continuing to cry out that he would solve her problem, uh, he ignored her. But his apparent callousness was not uh, because he didn't care, but because he understood what his mission was, number one, number one. And number two, he wanted her to continue to uh, plead with him so that she would develop and express 
the understanding of the word of God that she already had. Sometimes God doesn't answer our prayers because he wants us to get more focused on his word and to drive us back into thinking through what the word of God says to apply it to our particular problem. And so she addresses him as the son of David, which indicates that she is a believer. She recognizes he is the Messiah. She has accepted that, and she is pleading with him to deliver her daughter who's demon-possessed. Her daughter would be unsaved because she's demon-possessed. We don't know how old she was. She might have been quite young, but she is being tormented by a demon. And she recognizes, though, that that the gospel of God's grace was for Gentiles. This was clearly indicated by Jesus when he talked to the woman at the well, indicating that salvation is from the Jews. There was a priority to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. And the Canaanite woman recognized that. That shows a tremendous insight on her part. Now, when she approaches Jesus, she recognizes that uh, what the what the pattern is, what the priority is, and she doesn't plead with Jesus to make an exception. She says, refer, accepting the fact that as a Gentile, she's referred to as a dog. She says, even the little dogs, the pets in the house, feed off the children's crumbs from the table. You have come to give this bounteous feast of grace to the Jews, but even we Gentiles should have access to some of the crumbs not wanting the Lord to violate his priorities, primary mission, but we just want to get the extras. We want the leftovers, uh, but that is what we need. So she shows her, her uh, understanding of that. And furthermore, as she moves through that, she first of all addresses him formally as the son of David, as the Messiah, and then she has a, moves to a much more personal plea in Matthew uh, 15, 25, where she came and worshipped him him and says, Lord, help me. She's just desperate at that point. And it's at that point that the Lord recognizes that, uh, that who she is and he, or what she has asked for, and he solves that particular problem for her. Now, in terms of geographical movement, what we've seen is that Jesus fed the 5,000 down here by Bethsaida, Then the disciples went across the northern part of the Sea of Galilee, and it was there that Jesus walked on the water. They landed just south of Capernaum at a place called Gennesar today, and that is where he has the confrontation with the Pharisees from Jerusalem. And then he left that territory, so he just spent a minimal amount of time there in Herod Antipas' territory. Remember, he's trying to avoid that. And he heads out of the Jewish territory to this area of Tyre and Sidon, which is outside of Israel, Gentile territory. Uh, And it is there that he has this meeting with the Syrophoenician woman. Now what happens next is that he is going to head south. In verse um, 29, we read, Jesus departed from there, skirted the Sea of Galilee, and went up on the mountain and uh, sat down there. So after he has uh, delivered her daughter from the demon possession, then he leaves, and he went roundabout. He didn't come down through the territory of Galilee under the, where he would be uh, under the authority of Herod Antipas, but he circled around to the north, probably skirted the area we would call today Syria, and heads down through the ter- territory of, uh, of Philip the Tetrarch and heads south 
to the area to the east of the Sea of Galilee, which is known as the Golan Heights. It's a highly elevated, I've got a picture of it in a minute that we'll look at it. It's a mountainous, rugged territory, and it was Gentile territory. And we learn from the parallel passage in um, in Mark that he headed to the area of the Decapolis. Now, the term Decapolis is a Greek term, deca meaning ten, polis meaning cities. It's the area of ten cities, only one of which was in the territory of Israel, and that's the city of Beit Shan. The others were all in uh, Gentile territory, and so he is still ministering to the Gentiles. That's not as clear to us as it would be, have been to a Jewish reader in, in, the, uh, in the first century. So he is uh, coming to them to continue this outreach and this ministry uh, to, the, to the Gentiles. So verse 29, he skirts or goes around the Sea of Galilee, goes up on a mountain, it's very mountainous there, and sits down. And then in, uh, as I said, verse 31 of Mark indicates that he's in the region of Decapolis. So that would be in this area where the green circle is on the southeast side of the Sea of Galilee. This is what it looks like from the west side of Galilee, from the area roughly uh, of not far from uh, Gennesar, looking across due east, and you see how high the opposite side is. This is this is the Golan Heights. Why it's called the Golan Heights? Now, just for a little modern history, this area was uh, captured by Israel in in uh, in sixty seven, and it became part of Israel, and it's still considered quote disputed territory. It should not be, and the Jews. Every now and then people want the Jews to give it up. But you can see the tactical or strategic advantage of, uh, that Syria had when they uh, controlled the Golan Heights. They put their armor up here. They put their batteries of artillery up here. And they would just randomly lob shells across the Sea of Galilee into Tiberias and into all of the uh, uh, Jewish or Israeli towns on, on the west side of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, that's not a good thing strategically. So this gives you a little insight why the Golan Heights is so important and why Israel should never, ever give it up. Once they do, then they will be with, with a lot more modern weaponry than was there in the, in the 50s and 60s. Uh, their citizens would definitely be uh, in harm's way. So Jesus comes to this area. This is all Gentile territory on the east side of the Sea of Galilee, and he goes up into a mountain somewhere on this side for uh, some some time alone again, but the multitudes find out who he is. Now, th- these multitudes are composed of Gentiles. These are not Jews. So we're going to get a duplication of his ministry to the Jews in the feeding of the 5,000 in this feeding of the 4,000, and this shows that his grace is extended to the Gentiles in the same way that it has been extended uh, to the to the Jews. Now, there's a couple of other reasons why we know that this is a Gentile audience. We know that it's Gentile territory, but also at the end of this description, after he has uh, healed them in verse 30, 31, it says that they glorified the God of Israel. Now, he wouldn't use that phrase, and that fr- phrase isn't used when it speaks of Jews. 
But speaking of Gentiles, they would be not normally worshiping the God of Israel. They would be worshiping their pagan gods. So now they are worshiping the God of Israel because it is through the God of Israel the Messiah has come and provided a healing for them. Furthermore, when we read about the basketful of broken pieces or leftovers down in verse uh, verse 37, it's seven baskets. Now, when it was the 5,000, there were 12 baskets, so obviously that's a different detail. The 12 baskets are significant because 12 relates to the 12 tribes of Israel. But here, it's just seven baskets. But also, the, the Greek word for basket here is a different word than the word used in, uh, in Matthew chapter, chapter 14. The word there is used of these small baskets that were kosher baskets that the Jews used, whereas the, the basket that's, uh, that's referred to here is a large, uh, basket that was, uh, used by the Gentiles. So this would also indicate that he's speaking to a Gentile audience. The, the fact that they came to him bringing the lame, the blind, the mute, the maimed, and many others, uh, and they laid them down. It, the, the, the Greek there almost indicates that they throw them down. Now, they wouldn't be that cavalier, but they're in a hurry. And, and the level of excitement that's going on in this episode is they're bringing all of these people who are ill, uh, fatally ill. Some of them are crippled. They can't walk. Some are blind. Some have leprosy. All of these different kinds of people are being brought to Jesus. And he's healing them one after another. And, and the word spreads and more people come. And this goes on for three days. And the level of activity is so intense. And the level of excitement over what is happening and the transformation that's taking place from these people uh, physically is so enormous that, that it's going on around the clock 24-7 for three days. They don't even want to stop and eat because they're, they've never seen anything like it. Uh, whatsoever, and so they glorify God, and they recognize that this is the evidence of the Messiah. Isaiah twenty nine eighteen and nineteen, uh, talking about the Messiah. Isaiah said, "In that day, the deaf shall hear the words of the book, and the eyes of the blind shall see out of obscurity and out of darkness. The humble also shall increase their joy in the Lord, and the poor among men shall rejoice in the Holy One of Israel." Isaiah 35, 5 says that the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped, then the lame shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the dumb sing, for water shall burst forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. So this was what was expected of the Messiah, is that he would give sight to the blind, hearing to the deaf, he would uh, heal leprosy, he would raise the dead. These were the unique signs of the Messiah. Well, as the Third day ends and it's approaching dusk. Jesus calls his disciples to himself in verse 32 and says, I, I have compassion on the multitude because they have now continued with me three days and have nothing to eat, but I don't want to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. And so we see this emphasis on the compassion of the Lord again, that this is a, a, as I pointed out earlier, a significant theme in the ministry that God cares about his creatures. Now, not all of these are saved, so this references the common grace of God. The term common grace is a theological term that relates to God's goodness to mankind, whether they are saved or not. God says the rain upon the righteous and the unrighteous alike so that this references his care and concern as the creator 
for his creatures. And so Jesus shows compassion upon them, which as I referenced earlier is seen in uh, five different or four different five different passages in Matthew, Matthew nine thirty six, fourteen fourteen, fifteen thirty two, eighteen twenty seven, and twenty thirty five. But his disciples haven't quite gotten the picture yet, even though just it was probably no more than two or three weeks earlier that they fed the 5,000. They may even been been thinking that, well, that was a Jewish audience. They deserved to be fed by the Messiah. But what are we going to do with these pagan Gentiles? And so they they just haven't gotten the point that Jesus can solve their problem, which is not unusual because most Christians don't recognize that Jesus can solve their problems either, and they look all kinds of places to find a solution rather than recognizing that ultimately the, the solution is spiritual, and they have to radically trust in God through his word and through the Holy Spirit to solve their problems. So the disciples say, where are we going to get enough bread to fill all these people? Notice their their emphasis isn't just we're going to give them a little bit to eat, but we're going to fill them up. And that's important to understand in juxtaposition to the fact that when it's over with, there are these seven huge baskets left over. More than the 12 small baskets with the Jews, the, there are seven large baskets that are going to be filled up. And so Jesus says, well, how much do you have? And they said, well, we have seven loaves and a few little fish. So this is basically, this is like pita bread. This isn't a big loaf of bread like you buy from uh, Sunbeamer or a weed or Mrs. Baird's or something like that. This is just like seven, seven pieces of pita bread, not a lot. And we have a few little fish. And the idea here, these are very small fish, maybe even fragments of fish. So it's not quite uh, enough for probably even one person, maybe, maybe two or three. And so Jesus commands them to sit down on the ground. Now, in the previous situation, he had them lie down. Well, that was early in the spring, and in this area, the land would have been covered with grass, comfortable to lie down on. But now it's a little later. It's probably the early part of the summer. It's hot. The grass is withered under the heat of the sun, and so you need to sit on the ground. You're not going to lay out. It won't be quite as comfortable. And we're told that... He took the seven loaves and the fish, gave thanks, sanctified the food, broke them, and gave them to his disciples. Again, it's a private miracle. Nobody's seeing it happen. He's up there, the disciples are around him, and he's just take, continues to reach into this basket and pull out more fish and more bread and supplies them with what they need, and they begin to pass it out uh, to the multitudes. And then we're told in verse 37, they all ate and were filled and they took up seven large baskets. Now, the two things to note here. They're filled. That means God's grace is not going to give you barely enough. God's grace is going to give you all you need to solve your problem. He may not give you all you want, but he's going to give you all you need. He's not going to be chintzy with distributing his uh, power for you to solve the problems in your life. We're told that they were filled and there was excess, seven large baskets. Now, this is the Greek word I mentioned earlier, spurus, which describes these baskets. And it's used in Acts 9.25 to describe the baskets that the, apostle, the basket the Apostle Paul was put in 
to lower him down off of the wall of Damascus. He had there had been an attempt to stone him, and so he's got to escape. And they put him in a basket. Now that's a pretty good sized basket for a human being to fit in. That's a little different from the small kosher baskets that the Jews had at the feeding of the five thousand. So this is quite a bit, and there are seven left over. Now, whenever we look at the scriptures and we look at this aspect of the feeding of people, it takes us back, as I pointed out from Deuteronomy 8 earlier, that that this pictures God's grace to provide nourishment for us. And it always has in the background the Old Testament episode of God providing food for the Israelites as they're going through the wilderness. This is also described in Psalm 107, verses 4 through 9. Let me read through that. They wandered in the wilderness in a desolate way. They found no city to dwell in. It's pointing out that they couldn't. They had a major problem. They didn't have a permanent place to live. They didn't have a permanent source of food or water. And they are out in a pretty barren area. There's hardly any vegetation at all. Some of us have traveled through Israel and been down in the Negev, and it's about as bleak and barren a place as you can imagine. There's just nothing there except dirt. So they they can't find anything to sustain themselves, and they are hungry and thirsty, and verse 5 says their soul fainted in them. That is often the situation with believers as they face problems in life. They come to the end of the rope, they, they don't find anything to do. They're hopeless and they feel helpless, but we have to learn to depend upon God. Verse 6, Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them out of their distresses. All of the problems that they had, God was the solution to those problems. Verse 7, He led them forth by the right way that they might go to a city for a dwelling place. Speaking of him taking them, leading them, eventually to the land. And then the psalmist says, Oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men, for he satisfies the longing soul and fills the hungry soul with goodness. God is the solution. God is the one who richly fills us. But what we have to do is to learn to depend upon him, to really trust the fact that as the creator God, who is the one who created everything and the one who intimately knows the inner workings of every problem, every situation, understands our sinfulness and our uh, self-absorption and arrogance more than we can ever imagine, is the God who has designed everything so that he can solve those problems. So there's no situation you're facing, no struggle, no difficulty that God doesn't have the solution to. He is the ultimate solution. And so we need to trust uh, trust in him. This is what Jesus is teaching. Now, just to wrap up that story, at the conclusion of that third day, he sent away the multitude, got into the boat, and he went to Magdala. Now, there's a textual problem here. There was a, a different term in many manuscripts. We don't know where that's located There's a different location given in Mark. That's the only place that term is used. So there is an uh, assumption by many that Magdala, which is where Mary Magdalene was from, is is a likely location, but we're not really certain 
of where that was. That was back across on the west side of the Sea of Galilee. But what we have to remember is a great promise. One to remember is Matthew 4.19. My God shall supply all your needs, not some of them, not most of them, not the easy ones, but all your needs through his riches in glory. He has an infinite bank account. He is omnipotent. There's nothing, no problem that's too big for God's grace or God's power. And so he can supply all of our needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we're thankful that we have the freedom and the opportunity to study your word and to be reminded of your magnificent grace that your grace is sufficient for everything. You solved the greatest problem we'll ever face, a sin problem. We're born into this world, world spiritually dead, helpless, hopeless, lost, having a facade of life but no real life. Only through the Lord Jesus Christ do we have life. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here that's unsure of their salvation, uncertain of their eternal destiny, and may be confused about whether they even have real life. May this be their opportunity to trust in Jesus Christ as Savior. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He is life, life itself. And he said, I came not like the thief to steal and destroy, but to give life and to give it abundantly. And so the way to access that salvation and life is through trust in him believing that he is who he said he was, the Messiah of Israel, the promised prophesied Savior who would pay the sin penalty. And by trusting in him, we can have eternal life. Life is in Jesus Christ alone. The instant we trust in him, we have that eternal life. We become new creatures in Christ. We have a new identity in him. And your desire is to mature us, to strengthen us, to feed us, to nourish us, that we may be able to glorify you through all that we do. Father, we pray you challenge us with that, that we are to be a vessel of glorification for you, just as these who were fed among the 4,000 plus their families, that they uh, they, they were fed fully and they glorified the God of Israel. May we be reminded that that is why we are here, to focus upon you and to let your grace be manifested in every area of our life. We pray that you would challenge us with what we've learned this morning. In Christ's name, amen.